This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts. This is Backstage, The Devil in Metal. Unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode... I apparently did a shot of dope, and then it said, give me another one, and I went out and died. So they dragged me down four flights of stairs and leave me on the curb. And so we're running, hearts pounding, fucking nodding out, fucked up blood down our arms, and there's like wild animals you know, screaming and clawing at their cages at us. And we really thought we were going to die. I walked up on the stage, and that's all I remember. I was a full-blown act of a methadone and shooting heroin on top of it seven days a week and smoking $500 to $1,000 a crack every single day around the clock. If you're going to fucking put out a book and have the heroin diaries, you're full of shit. I'm calling you right now. You're full of crap. And so I, I really didn't notice it until I woke up on this couch, you know, and uh, asked for a gun. I mean, I bought him that. Oh, your friend John, he died. And he said he couldn't believe it. He said, my first thoughts were, I'm right behind you, Johnny. I'm right behind you. In 1995, I was working on staff at Rolling Stone when Alice in Chains released their third full-length album. It was their self-titled follow-up to the groundbreaking 1992 record, Dirt. Since I was the resident hard rock and metal guy at the magazine at the time, the reviews editor assigned me to write up the album for the lead review. Without wearing headphones, I blasted a pre-release CD of the album again and again much to the chagrin of my co-workers, and I struggled to make sense of the aching pain and beautiful melody of the album. I took detailed notes on every song, sometimes launching into stream-of-consciousness prose guided by the dense layers of sound and emotion. Half a dozen or so listens later, I started typing, and the piece practically wrote itself. As great as the songs were, I could tell that the band members, especially vocalist Lane Staley, weren't in great health and at least the singer was one dark night of the soul away from becoming a statistic. That's why the album is so good. It aches with sincerity and bubbles with pain. In my review, I pointed out that, quote, the lyrics deal with drugs, danger, and death, and the songs achieve a startling, staggering, and palpable impact. I added, Theirs are songs of the flesh, injected with doomy metal riffs and seamy harmonies that quiver and squirm in an insatiable quest for self-immolation. Unquote. I compared the band to a, quote, slashed wrist that was stark, bloody, and dramatic, but more indicative of a cry for help than of a true desire to spiral into the void. End quote. And I concluded, their most despairing tunes resound with the lust to live, and that, while survival is preferable to oblivion, pain and existence are inseparable. When I was done, I hesitated before hitting send. 
Like a musical pathologist, I had painstakingly dissected the songs and filtered through the messy contents. In my post-mortem, I determined the subject had been innovative and determined, but had flushed its system with mind-altering chemicals that threatened its existence. I hoped the subject, Lane, was not beyond redemption, and the struggle between being a credible, creative musician and a helpless junkie were his alone to undertake. To be honest, I wondered if I had stuck the knife in too deeply and dug at a decaying soul without any personal knowledge of what it's like to be in the throes of addiction. Fuck it. I did the best I could. And at the same time, I heaped praise on a very credible album. So I submitted the story. A couple weeks later, I was told the band loved the review and said they felt like I knew where they were coming from and was familiar with their type of struggle. Even though I was only a social drinker and casual drug user, I took that as a compliment and looked forward to checking out the band on tour. Though, I thought it was strange and not really a good sign that they hadn't scheduled any shows to promote the album. Alice in Chains topped the Billboard album chart in the second week of November, and within days, the magazine editor Keith Moore, managing editor Sid Holt, and I met with Alice in Chains manager Susan Silver at a high-end Chinese restaurant in Midtown Manhattan to discuss plans for me to fly to Seattle and spend a long weekend with Alice in Chains for the magazine's first cover story on the band. It was the group's first major interview in about 18 months. It was also Staley's last conversation with a magazine journalist before he lost his struggle to heroin. Welcome to Backstage, The Devil in Metal, a diversion podcast in collaboration with iHeartRadio. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and today we'll be examining the substance that has led many reckless musicians into the 27 Club. The drug heroin, derived from the opium poppy, that has been responsible for some of the greatest misery and most premature deaths in the history of rock and roll. Strangely, a hundred years ago, heroin was legal and sold as a cough suppressant with some nifty side effects. But in 1914, due to countless overdoses, heroin was taken off the shelves and sold as a prescription drug. Ten years later, it was outlawed and became a Schedule I controlled substance. The banning of heroin turned it into a highly sought-after illegal import, like cocaine or even marijuana. And the black market boomed through the years, with mass quantities arriving by air, road, and mostly sea. Today, there are tight border controls that prevent some heroin from getting into the country. But anyone with good connections and a strong desire can still obtain the deadly narcotic. And in the 80s and 90s, when most of the metal musicians we'll discuss were getting loaded on a regular basis, it was even easier to track down the substance. Needless to say, heroin took its toll on some of rock and metal's greatest artists in Los Angeles, Seattle, New York, and other major cities. And to this day, it's probably the one drug that the wild man of rock and roll, Ozzy Osbourne, has never touched. The one thing I'm grateful for, I never got involved with heroin or freeways with crack. So I know what he's fucking dead now. But back to Seattle and Alice in Chains. 
There wasn't much heavy lifting to do on my first day in the city. It was really a get-to-know-you sort of session, an opportunity to meet with the band at an Italian family-style restaurant and shoot the shit. We all made small talk, even Lane, but it became clear immediately that the vocalist was either physically exhausted or strung out. Everyone else drank alcohol. Lane ordered a Coke. And while his bandmates devoured their meals like starving dogs, Lane used his fork to spool and unspool strands of pasta, very few of which made it to his mouth. But most telling of all, the arms of Lane's long sleeve flannel shirt were buttoned between his thumb and forefinger, so only his bony fingers poked out of his sleeves. Maybe he was being artsy or something, I thought. Then, about five minutes later, he excused himself to use the men's room. He returned to the table with his shirt sleeves unbuttoned and the backs of his hands fully exposed. Both were dotted with needle marks, as were spots by his ear that his bandana didn't completely cover. A couple days later, I directly questioned him about his drug-fueled lyrics, his past trips to rehab, and people's perception that his life was paralleling that of Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain whose heroin addiction likely led to his suicide. Staley, who had been cracking jokes and speaking about everything from staying home all day playing video games to someday starting a family, suddenly became defiant. He stopped just short of admitting he was using by stressing that whatever he did wasn't anybody else's business. If I'm happy, if I'm, if I'm staying busy, if I'm doing great things, I think they're great, you know, and I don't have a problem with anything, you know. If I'm, you know, if I live on a just a strictly sugar diet, I like chocolate, all right? And nobody ever asked me, well, why do you eat so much? You know, shouldn't you lose some weight, you know? It's, <laughs> no, you shouldn't. He's fucking, he's meatloaf. He's fucking, yeah. He writes songs like this. He fucking has has a great time and sure none of your fucking business sure maybe he can meet well every fucking night <laughs> people have a right to ask questions and and dig deep when you're hurting people and things around you and i think people have a right to ask questions mm-hmm. you know i would um but when you know when i haven't talked to anybody in a year and every article i see is you know dope this junky that uh, whiskey this it's like you know that's not any of my title you know mm-hmm. like hi I'm playing nail biter you know yeah <laughs> like my my bad habits aren't my title you know my my good my my strengths and my talents are my title and you know I'm a I'm a good person with strong morals and uh, that's all it counts to me you know My interviews with the rest of the band were informative and at times entertaining, yet it was my time with Lane that revealed the singer's creativity, vulnerability, and sensitivity to a harsh, perplexing environment. He loved being a rocker, but he didn't want to be a role model. And when he saw himself being called a generational spokesperson, he made no effort to speak out to the masses. He became introverted and tried to escape however he could. That's where he actually saw a parallel between himself and Cobain. You know, I saw the, just the, you know, it's like the suffering that 
like Kurt went through, having having to deal with that, having people putting him up on that pedestal and not wanting to be there at all, you know, and not knowing him real well, but I met this kind of vibrant person and and then uh, ran into a little less vibrant person and ran into a real shy, timid, withdrawn, introverted person mm-hmm. who was, could, you know, hardly get a hello out, you know. Staley was very proud of the last album he made with Alice in Chains, but that joy didn't take away from his pain, loneliness, or need to escape. In the end, Staley couldn't kick his heroin habit, and he was in no condition to tour. So the band went on hiatus, and Lane completely dropped out, living as a helpless addict and recluse. Like way too many people who've sought comfort and escape in hypodermic euphoria, he never overcame his demons. He died on April 5th, 2002, after overdosing on a speedball, a dangerous cocktail of heroin and cocaine. He was 34. News of Staley's death was sad, but not terribly surprising. But those who labeled Staley a hopeless junkie whose irresponsible actions led to his premature death are missing the tragic truth. Lane Staley didn't want to die, and in the end, he didn't even enjoy doing heroin anymore. Even if he could have physically kicked the drug, as he tried numerous times, he couldn't stop himself. He couldn't stop being an addict. He was caught in the grasp of an illness he was helpless to cure. In the decades following Staley's death, other metal musicians also succumbed to the ravages of heroin. Never mind Satan or salacious groupies, heroin is the true devil of metal. Of course, heroin dependency and tragic overdoses didn't start with metal. In the 1930s and 40s, the jazz world was filled with addicts. Heroin abuse clearly led to the early demise of legendary bebop saxophonist Charlie Parker and groundbreaking female vocalist Billie Holiday. And Miles Davis, Art Blakey, Dexter Gordon, Sonny Rollins, and others all battled smack addiction. It wasn't long before the dangerous drug became part of the lexicon of rock and roll excess. Lou Reed, Eric Clapton, David Crosby, and Iggy Pop are a small handful of legendary rockers who battled smack. They battled smack addiction and overcame it. Janis Joplin, Brian Cole of The Association, Danny Witten of Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Tim Buckley, Gary Thane, Tommy Boland, Sid Vicious, Darby Crash of The Germs, Phil Linett of Thin Lizzy, and Hillel Slovak of Red Hot Chili Peppers, as well as Kristen Pfaff of Hole, Brad Knoll of Sublime, Jonathan Melvin of The Smashing Pumpkins, and Dee Dee Ramone, sadly, did not survive unrelenting addictions. There's a reason addicts use the phrase, monkey on my back. Once those claws dig in, it's pretty damn hard to shake off the beast. When it comes to hard rock and metal, It's not hard to understand how heroin has taken its toll on way too many musicians since the 70s. If rock and roll is about letting loose, partying like there's no tomorrow, 
and experimenting with new ideas and substances, metal is about upping the ante and exploring beyond boundaries. And some musicians have immersed themselves in the lifestyle, pushed the extremes, and strived for near annihilation as much as escape. For members of bands as stylistically varied as Motley Crue, Rat, Megadeth, Ministry, and Slipknot, being doped up was accompanied with a certain fearlessness. And part of the thrill came from teetering on the edge of the abyss, defying death, and then returning to the land of the living before getting ready for the next fix. The first mainstream metal band to be ravaged by narcotics was, well, the first mainstream metal band, Black Sabbath. Vocalist Ozzy Osbourne and guitarist Tony Iommi didn't use heroin. If they had, they've both said they wouldn't be alive. That said, there was a time around 1972 when Iommi was doing between two and three grams of cocaine a night, and his bandmates weren't far behind. Doing volume four, it was... Absolutely ridiculous. Then we were having stuff flown in on private planes and all sorts of stuff in them days. We really did go mad then. But, but it was a great period for us. We enjoyed it. And uh, and then on for, for the next album, Sabbath, Billy Sabbath, we tried to recreate the same thing. And of course, it just didn't happen. Heroin allegedly did take its toll on one original member of Black Sabbath. Drummer Bill Ward was able to keep his act together when he was a chronic alcoholic. But when he was shooting up, as he did around the time of Heaven and Hell, the first Black Sabbath album without Ozzy, Ward began a rapid downward slide. Author Mick Wall, who was working as Sabbath's publicist at the time, says Ward later told him how close he was to a fatal overdose. It was because he was a major alcoholic who was doing major heroin, major drugs, and to cut a story short, that was in about March 1980. Within six months, by the time we got to America, by the time the album had come out and we got to America, he'd left. And he told me uh, not so long ago that he went to bed for three months and that in L.A. And every morning the drug dealer would come by with his smack and everything else he needed and hang out for an hour or two and then leave again. And then they would come back the next morning. And it was at that time that Bonham died. You know, Bonham died, I think, in the September of 80. Mm-hmm. And he said he, it was his dealer that told him. Uh, he said he, the reason he was in bed for three months was his legs didn't work anymore. He couldn't walk. Which was why it was so important the dealer came to his place, because there'd be no getting in the car and going anywhere. He didn't leave the place, didn't leave the bedroom for three months. He said, and it was his dealer that said to him, I think it was a woman, said to him, oh, your friend John, he died. And he said he couldn't believe it. He said, my first thoughts were, I'm right behind you, Johnny. I'm right behind you. Another rocker who, by all accounts, should be dead, is Motley Crue bassist Nicky Six. One night, when the band was working on its second album, 1983's Shout at the Devil, Nicky was speeding through L.A. in his Porsche when the vehicle slid off the road and crashed into a telephone pole. He dislocated his shoulder in the accident, and doctors gave him a bottle of prescription painkillers. He liked them so much, he spent three whole days taking the medication around the clock. And when the bottle ran out, he scored some smack. 
Nikki started by smoking the smack. Then, two friends showed him how to use needles, and he spent the next five years shooting up numerous times a day. He chronicled those hazy times in a diary he wrote in regularly and released in 2007 as The Heroin Diaries. I found the diaries a few years ago uh, in a storage unit in Los Angeles. Uh, I've been keeping diaries since maybe 1978. I, I write pretty diligently every day. And uh, during the height of my drug addiction, I think I, I wrote even more than I do now. There's, there's a part of me that I had isolated myself so much from everybody, the band, my friends, uh, that I kind of, it became sort of like a friend to me. And I was writing all the time in it. And I was writing about the fact that I couldn't get off the drugs and that I didn't want to get off the drugs. I did want to get off the drugs. Mostly, Nikki didn't want to get off the drugs. And over a five-year period, he reportedly overdosed six times, including once when his heart stopped while paramedics were working on him on the scene. In a last-ditch effort to save him, an EMT worker grabbed a syringe of adrenaline and plunged it through Nikki's chest, reviving him the same way John Travolta resurrected Uma Thurman in the movie Pulp Fiction. Nikki wrote about the incident in the 1989 Motley Crue song, Kickstart My Heart. The Heroin Diaries is a grueling roller coaster ride of addiction and despair. And even though he used them as a way to stay somewhat in touch with himself, they ultimately offered him a glimpse of salvation. And that happened on Christmas Eve 1987, exactly a year after he spent the night naked under a Christmas tree, clutching a shotgun and contemplating suicide. As I was going through these and realizing how deep I got into the addiction, including writing after I actually had a, a drug overdose and died from it, and then went back and shot up the very same night and wrote about that, and then actually deciding on Christmas morning, a year later from when I was shooting up in front of the same Christmas tree that had never been taken down to quit, and I quit cold turkey. To those who have never experienced the harrowing desperation of addiction, the process that led to the heroin diaries seems plausible. To Pantera and down frontman Philip Anselmo, who was overdosed on smack and was almost pulled under by the devastating undertow of the drug, Nikki's diaries are sheer fantasy. Some prick, Nikki Six, has been nothing but nice to me. That's great. But if you're going to fucking put out a book and have the heroin diaries, you're full of shit. I'm calling you right now. You're full of crap. If you're on dope, yeah, look, yeah, you can function. Shit, I've functioned. You can sleepwalk through anything. You're not gonna scribble down notes and shit while you're dope sick, though. Mm. Last thing you want is a pen in your fucking hand. It's full of shit. Jane's addiction guitarist, Dave Navarro, whose playing incorporates metal riffs and techniques into the band's alternative rock, says the group lived up to its name when it came to narcotics. And they had the same enthusiasm for getting loaded as they had for their music. Which is how Navarro wound up in countless situations Nikki Six could have related to. Jane's guitarist was in London before a gig when he stumbled into a rundown squat with some local junkies. 
The place didn't have electricity or running water, and it wasn't exactly sanitary. But the shell of a building, essentially a small crack house, was adequate for shooting up and passing out. I apparently did a shot of dope, and then it said, give me another one, and I went out and died, apparently. This is what I'm hearing. And uh, they tried to revive me, they tried to put me in the bathtub, blah, 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 nothing happened, nothing worked. So they dragged me down four flights of stairs and leave me on the curb and call, and it, you know, the, whatever the English 911 is, you know, call for an ambulance. And everybody scattered because they were afraid of getting arrested, you know. But we can't let this guy die, so let's let him go out there and hopefully, you know, wish for the best, but let's cover our asses. One guy was running away, and he got in Phil, and he came back and tried one more time to, like, compress my chest. And I started coughing up and spitting up, and he brought me back, pulled me back up four flights of stairs, and put me in the bathtub and kept ice on me until I came to. And apparently, when I came to, the first thing I said, he says to me, dude, you were dead last night. Because I came to, and it was like daylight. It was like a whole day had gone by. He goes, you were dead last night. I'm like, uh, do you have any dope? <laughs> the first thing I want to do was get high. Right. And so I actually did. And then I had I had a show that night in, in London. So a similar thing where I just like I wasn't going to make the show. And I believe that Dave Gahan was in the audience. It was like a big deal for us. And uh, I remember that particular show. I actually nodded out and fell asleep on stage with, with holding my guitar. I don't remember exactly what happened. but I, I fell asleep. There's a certain allure to learning horror stories from a drug addict. Hearing or reading about the crazy shit others have endured without having to experience any of the side effects or aftermath provides a sort of vicarious thrill. That's why books like The Heroin Diaries and Slash's Slash became bestsellers. But don't kid yourself. There's nothing fun, funny, or glamorous about being a heroin addict. Which is why I want to stress that the anecdotes in this episode are cautionary tales. Many rockers who overcome their addiction can tell wildly entertaining stories about their experiences. But you can be sure that when slumped in the corner of a filthy bathroom stall about to stick a needle into their arm, very few feel anything but desperation and heartache. I'm John Wiederhorn, host of Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstage Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to Backstage at DiversionPodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at DiversionPodcasts.com. Megadeth frontman Dave Mustaine and the band's recently departed co-founder and bassist David Ellefson both started using heroin early in their careers when they were building a substantial reputation as a talented band, yet they had no home, 
no money, and a lead guitarist and drummer that allegedly kept selling the band's gear for drug money. That put Megadeth in the frustrating position of coming up with enough cash to score a round of dope before going to the local pawn shops to buy back their own equipment. As Mustaine recalls, I remember we lived in a studio with no windows, no toilet, no nothing. And the only time we could go shower was when someone would come over that was managing us, would take us to the gym. And we'd go into the gym high on, on whatever we could get high on to not feel the pain or the misery of starving to death. And um, to actually acknowledge the, the lifestyle we were living, as shaming as it is, you know. You're a musician, you're really good at what you do. Your parents, both of mine were deceased, I had no one to turn to, and David Ellison's dad and mom lived in Minnesota, and they were losing their farm because of Reaganomics. So we had no source of income, and we had Kristen Gar in the band, who every time you turned around, they would pawn some of our equipment for heroin. We had nowhere else to turn. So, yeah, we would get high and go to the gym to get showered up. When he started doing dope, Ellefson wasn't quite as desperate or dejected as Mustaine. At first, he was having fun and going with the flow. Drinking and taking drugs were part of a ritual, a celebration of being a signed musician living the dream. He thought he was going through the steps of decadent indulgence and successfully riding the wave other rockers he admired had previously navigated. It wasn't long before Ellefson had sunk so deep he couldn't tell which way to swim to get back to the surface. The problem was, every step he took into the ocean of depravity was exhilarating, so he kept going and taking more risks. Suddenly, he could no longer stand. The first risk, as far as that goes, is the taboo of drinking. Because if you drink, you might turn into a drunk. Mm -hmm. And then you drink once and go, God, that was fun. Mm-hmm. It's like no longer taboo, you know? Yeah. And it went like that with me for everything I did after that. Pot, pills, blow, heroin, everything, you know? It's like once I did it and didn't die or get arrested or mm-hmm. go to jail or basically no consequences, it was like, cool, that was good, you know? I think I'll do more of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it's like with each drug, there's like a social circle. And with each drug, you kind of like go down into the underground another right, notch or two lower. Yeah, you know, until so you're strung out on on dope, and then all of a sudden you think, God, I'm so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> real life, but you're like hanging out in a bathroom of apartments, smoking crack and doing heroin with people, and you're like thinking, God, I'm fucking cool. And mm-hmm. these people I'm hanging with, you're looking around and you're like, How did I get with these people? I hate these people, you know. Yeah. And then there's the risk of trying to stop that. Because once you've done it for so long, that becomes your only reality. That becomes normal, you know? So stopping it seems like, God, people who don't do this are square. I don't want to be like them, you know? But the reality is once you've been there, you'll never square again. It's like that always has laid its fingerprint on you forever, you know what I mean? Mustaine and Ellefson were both able to kick heroin before their careers spiraled down the toilet. Though once Mustaine stopped using smack, he filled the gulf with alcohol and other drugs. For Dave, being clean meant dealing with the emotional and psychological pain of life. And he wasn't yet ready for that. Yeah, the whole reason that I I did the whole thing and use something was because I hurt. 
you know, I had to hurt from loneliness, I hurt from anger, I hurt because I didn't have something I wanted, I hurt because I was afraid I wasn't going to get something, something that I, I wasn't going to keep something I had. Mustaine eventually found clarity, but not before he nearly became a statistic. At the time, the press reported the incident as a near-death experience, but that wasn't quite right. It was a near-death, it was death in 1992. It was in February, I think. We were touring, and uh, I was up in Eugene, Oregon, and the concert, barricade broke, fans rushed the stage, we ran up to the bus, bus took off, canceled the tour, and uh, went home because the drug use got so bad, and the eating values, and uh, stuff like that. You know, my wife didn't like the smell of alcohol, but I was much more keener than, than to be defeated by you know, something as simple as the smell of alcohol, so I got values. And I overdosed that values, and my heart stopped. And uh, they had enough time to call from the hospital where I was at and say, you know, that I had died, and then, um, don't bother coming. And I thought that that was bullshit because, you know, hospital protocol, you don't do stuff like that. But my wife confirmed that they had called and said that. And uh, sadly, the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction, uh, I wasn't convinced yet. And uh, although I started to improve my life and get things together, I wasn't quite done yet. And uh, I ended up going back to treatment two more times. Bobby Liebling from the pioneer doom band Pentagram hasn't been so lucky. Repeat trips to rehab only fueled his hunger to get high again. In 2004, following an on-again, off-again, 30-year career filled with decadence and debauchery, Liebling hit rock bottom. His body could no longer handle the strain he was inflicting on it. And at the beginning of a planned tour for the band's new album, Show Em How, he suffered a near-fatal overdose and displayed a side of himself he had been trying to hide for years. That was at the Black Cat in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. That was supposed to be the debut of uh, the Show Em How album. That was January 15, 2005. I walked up on the stage, and that's all I remember. Oh, I was a full-blown act of a methadone and shooting her on top of it seven days a week and smoking $500 or $1,000 a crack every single day around the clock. I had just taken my methadone that day. It was a case of I had been up around the clock without one minute sleep, smoked and cracked for six days before the gig. Right? No water, no food, nothing for six days. Right. I mean, not a minute of sleep. And uh, debuting a brand new band with a brand new album with a packed house. I just blacked out. You know, I woke up the next, the next following night uh, at Howard University Hospital wondering what had happened and what I the first thing I said to the nurse is what day is today and she said it's uh you know like it's Sunday or something like that mm-hmm. and if the gig was on a Saturday I can't even remember and then my mind said oh my god oh no oh no I missed the gig I did something happened mm-hmm. and I didn't know really what had happened hmm. I wasn't aware of you know that I, that I came out on stage twice, they said, fell into the drum set, all this stuff going on, and you know, so forth and so on. In early 2011, the last time I interviewed Liebling, Pentagram had just signed a three-record deal with Metal Blade and released the new album Last Rites, 
The band's last full album, Curious Volume, came out in 2015 on a different label. Then Liebling relapsed and spent some time off the grid. In 2017, the band toured without their singer. By 2019, Liebling had sorted out some of his issues, and the band released the single Be Forewarned and played a string of live performances with Liebling. A press release for the tour described Bobby as, quote, remorseful and rehabilitated. That'll do it for Volume 1 of Heroin, Absolute Evil. Come back for Volume 2 to hear from Ministry's Al Jurgensen, Jane's Addiction's Dave Navarro, and a former manager of Guns N' Roses, who all have stories that would be entirely unbelievable if they weren't verifiably true. Until then, as Lemmy from Motorhead sang on the band's 1979 album, even if he didn't actually mean it, stay clean. At least from smack. As for speed, coke, weed, pills, and booze, that's another story. No, well, my view's always been you can do what you want to decide of the gig. You can do anything you like, you know, except heroin, but, like, don't mess up the gig, you know? When the gig shows up and when it's time, you, you better be ready and you better deliver, you know? That's the only rule I got. Otherwise, you know, free to go. Heroin use and heroin-related overdose deaths are increasing among people from all walks of life in the United States. Most people are using it with other drugs, especially prescription opioid painkillers. Using heroin, along with other drugs or alcohol, compounds the risk of overdose. Everyone can learn about the risks of using heroin and other drugs. And you, or a loved one, can get help for substance abuse problems and learn how to recognize and respond to an overdose. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital science. That's cdc.gov slash vital science. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn, produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Kalb. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer. And our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show... Be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. Diversion Podcasts.